And so the beauty of the system is that where the animals go one year and the corn is next year, we just simply take them and flip them. So now the corn is planted where the animals went, has the ability to utilize those nutrients that are you know, going to be slowly made available. And so we've, the net result is that we've you know, decreased the on-farm need of buying nutrients off the farm from somebody else by 80% roughly. Uh, we still need some additional nitrogen for the corn crop, but 80% reduction in nutrients. I'm Chris Howsworth, a grain originator and accountant living in Pocahontas, Iowa. And you are listening to the Vance Crow Podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm glad you're here. Today, we sit down with farmer Zach Smith. Zach is the stock cropper. Many of you may have heard of him or seen him on Twitter. He's one of those guys that's taking some of the more avant-garde ideas, maybe even dreams, and turning them into a reality. Changing the hyper-efficient system where we're planting rows and rows and rows of corn and soybeans and instead creating a system where he can actually run livestock in between the rows of crops and then rotating them year after year. What he is going to explain here will blow your mind and he is actually producing some products that I think could actually really change the nature of how we get things like eggs in the future. His ideas for making the Roomba of um, chicken eggs (laughs) is really neat. You're going to find this interesting and you're going to find Zach to be one of those pragmatic people that both knows the large-scale agriculture system and is trying to create something new and different within the system. We're going to get to that interview in just a moment, but first I wanted to tell you a story that happened earlier this week. A woman came in. She was brought by her son and she was nervous about doing the interview. We sat outside in the waiting area for about 20 minutes just talking about what kinds of questions I would ask and how it would all work. She had been sent the preparing guide and she'd gone through it, but there was something that just really felt uncomfortable about doing this legacy interview. She was nervous. And it was interesting because this was clearly a woman that was determined, that ran a very successful family, that was really a confident person, and yet she felt kind of intimidated. But when we sat down here in the studio and we got to talk about where her parents came from, why they ended up in farming, and about her childhood. By the time we moved into some of the more deep and and intense questions, she was really open. And in fact, at the end of the interview, she stopped me and said, you know, there were things I talked about with you that I haven't told anybody in 70 years. Now, it's not that she was telling me big secrets or things that were hidden away. It was that there just wasn't the context for her to tell these stories. I am certain when her children and grandchildren watch these interviews, they're going to hear things that they maybe wouldn't have heard if they hadn't sat down and done a legacy interview. If you're interested in having me interview your loved one, perhaps your father for Father's Day, then go to LegacyInterviews.com. We are now offering these transcripts to go along with legacy interviews, and if you get a half day, you can also order this transcript along with it. The details for how to do this are on the website, so go to LegacyInterviews.com to find out more. All right, without further ado, let's head to the interview with Zach Smith. Farmer Zach Smith, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Thanks for having me. What does it take to make really good bacon? <laughs> uh, well, yeah, you got to enjoy some this morning. Yeah. Uh, you got to enjoy some star cropper bacon. Uh uh, good bacon, I think, in my opinion, comes from uh, 
good hardy breeds uh, that have uh, that have some fat on them. Because uh, fat's where the flavor comes from, and uh, I like pigs that are raised on dirt uh, because uh, there's just something about uh, pigs on dirt uh, versus pigs on slats and concrete that uh, it's hard to replicate. And uh, I'll put uh, the bacon that I raise uh, in my stock cropper barns and or, or any outdoor uh, if, if pigs can be on soil where I think they belong. I think that's the best way to, uh, best tasting, uh, best raised meat you can have. I think most people kind of assume that pigs are living in dirt and have like pig styes and are living outside yeah. by a barn. No, uh, no, they're not. I mean, uh, I don't know what the percentage is, but probably 95, 98% of, you know, hogs produced in the country are raised in uh, confinement barns. And they're actually, when you go in them, they're really clean. Uh, I think most people, I think, you know they're not allowed in to see, but like if you actually get in there, uh, they're uh, they're really impressive buildings and structures. are super efficient, and uh, you see very little manure because the manure goes through the concrete slats uh, and down into the pits below. But it's uh, but they never see sunlight other than it hitting them on the ass when they walk out the loading chute into the truck, and uh, they never see soil. And um, you know I one of the things I I was uh, sharing with you earlier uh, when we were talking about. One of the lessons in COVID, when they were destroying a lot of animals, uh, you know, they were they gave uh, they were they had programs where you could if you could butcher the animal and give it to somebody, they would. Uh, yeah, they're because in COVID, when all of a sudden you weren't butchering these hogs, these hogs have got to yeah. go. They can't, you can't just keep them. So people are like, we're just going to go slaughter them and bury them in a right. pit. So you guys right. came along and were like, hey, we'll slaughter them and give them away as food. Yeah, and one of the, the most telling things that happened when that happened is we went and got, I had a, a real good friend that uh, uh, we set up our seed dealership actually as a butcher shop, and we just took hogs from his farm and we butchered them, but we needed a place to hold them in the meanwhile till we had enough time to, to process them. And we put them out onto dirt out of his trailer into our dirt pen. And all of the, all those confinement pigs wanted to do when they hit the ground was gnaw at the earth and they did it for like two hours straight what do you mean gnaw at the earth they just they acted like they were desperate to eat soil and i'd never seen anything like that before in my life like where they'd never seen it before but they knew that there was something in that soil that they wanted and they just you know a pig snout is not meant to uh you know easily eat earth that uh Uh, is compacted but they just wanted to be in it and there's you know and even with my hogs that are used to it the first thing when we move our barns they they put their their noses down and there's something it's mineral or it's the the bugs or the worms i don't really understand it but uh they're meant to be on that obviously and when you when they hadn't had it and they never seen it they immediately had that instinct to start trying to consume soil yeah i understand why we have confinement like raising hogs like it is the mass production of meat but I will say that is, in all of agriculture, the part of ag that makes me the most uncomfortable. I've been to large uh, confinement operations for cattle. I've seen chickens. Yeah. I've seen egg production. Pigs are the ones where you're like, those things are really smart. Yeah, They really know what's going on, and they are in like a very yeah, sterile I, environment. I'll be careful. I don't want to be uh, overdramatic. Uh I think there's a lot of people I'm really good friends with in the, in the industry that work really hard and take a lot of pride in taking care of their pigs. And it's a system that is uh, exploitive to the people. Hog production and chicken you know, production, not so much uh, cattle. That's a little structured a little bit differently. But yeah, the, the business, the, it's not that f- there's very few independent producers anymore that are actually 
uh, what I would call being like an artisanal independent farmer that are making all the decisions. They don't own the livestock. Very few of them like own pigs anymore. You, the way it works is you put it, you, uh, you have land, you build a, a hog barn on it and you get the manure, but everything else is controlled by the vertically integrated company like a, a Smithfield or a JBS or whoever. And they are in control of, and you are there to provide uh, cheap labor and be responsible for the upkeep and maintenance of that building. And, um, uh, and the hog industry, especially right now, is uh, in, in a world of hurt because all of that confinement, there's been a lot of problems with uh, amplification of disease and um, all sorts of things now. And we have things like uh, uh, Prop 12 uh, that just got upheld by the Supreme Court, uh, which is going to change that industry a lot. And it really puts you, you kind of get put on this hook of, I, I call it serfdom, where like you're at the beck and call of these large integrators, uh, they hold, you know, kind of a hammer over the, the grower's head and say, you must do this. You must go and spend all this capital now to, to bring this. Otherwise we'll pull your contract and you won't have anything. And so that that's not the way it used to be. Um, uh, every, you know, every farmer was independent. They made their own decisions. They had their own infrastructure. They owned it for, they were, they were the craftsmen of, of raising the things. They didn't have a field man that told them how to do it. They, they knew how to do that uh, on their own. And so we've, in the last 30 to 40 years we've that industry has changed substantially and in my opinion it's not for the better yeah when i talk to pork producers who i think like actually care a great deal about yeah. their animals 100%. you know like they're like well we took out the dirt because there was disease and we yep. took out these things because like so you understand each step they took along the way yeah. and i think any one of them would say oh i'd be great to have pasture raised pork like it's not like they but don't understand work. the value yeah why is it so much more work um, well, it's just, I mean, you eliminate like those environmental uh, issues that come along, cold weather, uh, you know, uh, uh, disease, you know, mud, uh, th things like that, that make it, you know, more difficult. And it's also, you know, when you build it like a factory, you can get the throughput through and that we, we made a decision a while back that that was more important. And a lot of the other external costs that come along with it, we have never, We've never decided as an industry to put that in the ledger of the mathematics of how the systems, uh, how this system works, and uh, I, it's it's fake math or it's fuzzy math, as uh, George Bush would say, on uh, accounting for the costs of the system as a whole. And I think uh, it's high time that uh, that we stand up and actually account for those costs. Uh, well, I think one of the reasons we don't account for the cost is because most people have never had the bacon like I had this morning, right? Like, so yeah. we got my two daughters, my wife, you and I were about to have breakfast and we have this bacon and it, it, it actually looked different yeah. than the bacon that I get at the store. And even if I wanted to go to the store and get it, I couldn't. Yeah. I mean, the supply of it is minuscule compared to, um, yeah, to what people are used to. I mean, I was... You know, I, I ate at a Culver's on the way down here and like I, I only eat the meat that I produce and uh, it was a salad with chicken on it. And like the chicken breast that I had was uh, it tasted completely foreign to me. You know, it's pumped full of, you know, uh, preservatives and, you know, brine solutions. It doesn't even taste like what I'm used to killing a chicken, you know, letting it, you know, go through rigor and, and freezing it and then throwing it on my Traeger like it's a totally different product. And uh, yeah, most people aren't. Uh, don't have access to know the difference or even to question it. This is just what chicken tastes like. This is just what bacon tastes like. So I think my experience with working at Monsanto, I got the, I got the behind the scenes look. And the thing that it showed me was 
people on the outside of the industrial food system that are throwing rocks at it believe that there's a bunch of people that are intentionally doing something really negative, something that like, oh, we're trying to trick these people. We're trying, but basically everything that is going on in, in the industrial food system is to solve a problem. It's that like, Hey, people got sick from food poisoning. So we're going to treat food this way and, and we're going to, you know, apply these regulations. And so then these things done at giant scales start making it so it's just like like you wake up one day and the system is so different than the way that your father or grandfather did it, but you understand how you took all those steps to get there. Yeah. Policy drives agriculture and farmers respond to the policy because they're in the business to make money. And so if the policy uh, is not set up intelligently enough to take into account the things we were talking about, uh, the farmers do it, but I don't. I don't necessarily blame farmers. I do. I am critical of farmers not being more self-critical, and looking at what we're doing and asking tougher questions as to why or could we do it better or the lack of curiosity. Um, but I think that's probably in in every form of uh, of business. You know, people get used to tradition. They get used to the way that things that dad did it or grand grandpa did it, and it's hard to rock that boat or to get out of that lane. And I don't, that's not just to agriculture. That's to, that's to everything. But I, I think that uh, the, the consistent things for me are, are poorly constructed policy that doesn't uh, account for external costs. Um, and the fact that change is hard. I think those yeah, human nature um, is a big reason as well. So, so you are the founder or the president of stock cropper. Mm-hmm. What is stock cropper? So stock cropper uh, is an idea that was hatched uh, four springs ago, right when COVID was hitting. Myself and two other farmers, uh, Sheldon Stevemer and Lance Peterson. We were farmers that were, uh, I should back up, commodity prices right before COVID were like just garbage. Uh, 275 cash corn, 725 uh, bushel of beans. We were both corn, or all corn and soybean farmers, well below the cost of production. And we're all small farmers. And we were trying to find a way of how in the hell are we going to stay in business? Because we didn't have the scale like a lot of the big operations where they can have advantages with negotiating, you know, deals on equipment or seed or whatever. And uh, we'd been playing around with some of these uh, concepts I call biohacks, where you change the arrangement of the field and be able to boost yield just by not buying an input, but changing the architecture of what a field looks like. We were interested in this concept called strip intercropping, where instead of all corn or all soybeans across the field, you plant alternating strips of 20 foot of corn, 20 foot of soybeans, 20 foot of corn. And the idea is, is by changing that arrangement, you get some uh, cultural benefits to growing that way. And you also get increased light for the corn on the outside rows. And when you give them that, you can substantially boost the yield. And so the idea is, is that the beans will take a little bit of a hit in yield, but the corn increase uh, when you do the math across the entire field, you're better off to put that diversity in, and it kind of raises all ships, and you can increase gross revenue. That was the concept we were thinking about putting broad acre across. But the problem is, is that the soybean, it's a risky thing to do. Uh, it's not as efficient as just broad acre farming. And we're like, well, what if we could crack a code and find something to put in between the corn that would be as productive as the corn from a revenue standpoint? And we were uh, this idea of like relay cropping from folks like uh, 
John Coots and Jason Mock and uh, Lauren Steinloggy, folks like that. They're working on that, but you know, it's what's relay cropping. Relay cropping is where you plant a, a crop like wheat or rye in the fall, and then you come in and plant a crop like soybeans into it, and then you will harvest uh, the wheat or the rye in July, and then the soybeans will come up. It allows you to get two crops essentially in one year, but the further north you are, it's harder to get uh, the fall crop established because of our hard winters and cool springs. And so we're like, well, what else could there be? And the idea was hatched uh, by my friend Lance. He said, well, what if we put a pen of sheep in between the corn? I'm like, a pen of sheep? What the hell? Well, first of all, who's going to eat lamb? We live in the corn belt. You know, people eat pork and beef and, you know, some chicken. And 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 then we started talking like, well, what if it what if it wasn't just a pen of lamb? What if, you know, we're told we don't have enough diversity on our landscape, which we don't, you know? What if we made a four-ring animal circus on wheels where we had not just sheep, but we had sheep and goats and pigs chickens and what if we what if we built this thing and we incorporated all the technology that we have on our fancy you know four hundred thousand dollar tractors with gps and but what if we didn't burn diesel to make it go across the field what if we put solar panels and batteries and made a device like elon musk would and make that go across the field and we changed the arrangement of a field so that we don't need to call a fertilizer truck anymore and pay uh nutrient or, or whoever to bring me map and potash and, and uh, nitrogen out like the animals produce that and uh, and we have this system that essentially is self-sustaining in a loop where we're producing grain not to burn at an ethanol plant but to feed back to livestock in a incredibly low carbon footprint system that just makes a ton of sense it's an intelligent use of old ways with new technology and uh, that was the birth of this concept that we called stock cropping, which is why I define it simply as the reintersection of livestock and crops working together simultaneously or simultaneously at the same time in the field. So it's so funny because like it's one of those ideas that you could see a couple of guys sitting around playing euchre, drinking some beers, oh, yeah. talking about and well, then be like, remember when we talked about that idea? But nobody ever moves these crazy four ring circus ideas forward. Yeah, I I was so excited about it. Like, I couldn't hardly sleep. I mean, it was just, and it was the same way with the others. I mean, we had, a, it, this all was hatched on Twitter DM, this idea was. And it was just a rapid fire. Like, the whole concept came to fruition in our minds in about 10 minutes of just rapid fire ideas. And then um, my, uh, my friend Sheldon was an egg engineer, brilliant um, uh, egg mechanical engineer, and so that was a huge leg up because if I would have built this thing, it would have looked like bubble bubble gum and two by four strapped together. But like he actually sat down together and we designed this barn uh, that had, you know, um, a place for the animals to go and have pr be protected inside, have food and water available, shade. Uh, the roof was designed actually to capture its own rainwater. So we took advantage of when it rained, we could water the animals and minimize the need to chore it. Animals had the ability to go out and graze outdoors. So the sheep and goats would be our leading pen then followed by the pigs, and then followed with the chickens, and that was in an intentional order because they all perform different tasks. So the sheep and goats are our lawnmowers. The pigs are kind of our tillage agent, and then the... Whoa, slow this down. Talk talk more. What do you mean? They're lawnmowers? For so, you know, we, we, we plant... Uh, so I, I should back up. Instead of having the corn and beans in the system, we plant corn the first year, and then in between where we had soybeans before in this 20-foot strip, we put a strip of pasture. Okay. Uh so that 
and, and a cacophony or like a, a cornucopia of, of, of plants out there. So instead of just having corn or soybeans, now we have, uh, we have a pasture mix in between that has uh, five or six different species of plants feeding the soil. And then the animals or the sheep and goats come into it first as the pen moves into fresh pasture. Uh, so you're imagining like a, like a square. Correct. And then inside of that square at the front of the square is a little area where it's fenced in and it automatically moves forward. Correct. And then the sheep move along with it, yep. eating the first round of grass. Yep. As soon as they hear the motors kick in, they jump up out of the barn and run out like it's Christmas morning because they just they want to chomp at that fresh vegetation. And the, what has been grazed down then goes to the pigs. They root around in it a little bit, and then uh, and then it's passed on to the chickens who scratch. And you know, if the pigs have rooted it up, they'll kind of finish it off. The idea with the the chickens is is that if you can delay the time of them coming, if the if flies have laid uh, eggs in the manure, that they'll scratch for the larva, and you have kind of this intelligent complete system of just changing the arrangement with different animals serving different purposes, and they're all laying down uh, nutrient-rich manure um, in real time as it goes across the field. The difference when our system and the conventional system that spreads manure usually only in the fall when it's convenient and there's nothing to hold that manure in place. And the conventional system is you got a bunch of cattle in a pen or you've got pigs somewhere, you take that manure and you're using it. You're like yeah. putting it up in a manure spreader and you're going out, but you're doing it once a year, you're, you're putting it out in the fall before the winter. Right. And there's nothing, you know, gr the ground will freeze and that will stop a lot of the, a uh, lot of the movement. But in the springtime, when things warm up, there's nothing there to, to hold it typically. Uh, and so in our system, we have, we have a living root in the, uh, in the ground that is holding that nutrient and then making it available and with kind of a time release as that organic matter decays to the next crop. And so the beauty of the system is that where the animals go one year and the corn is next year, we just simply take them and flip them. So now the corn is planted where the animals went, has the ability to utilize those nutrients that are you know, going to be slowly made available. And so we've, the net result is that we've you know, decreased the on-farm need of buying nutrients off the farm from somebody else by 80%, roughly. Uh, we still need some additional nitrogen for the corn crop, but 80% reduction in nutrients. We've 10x the amount of diversity between the animals and the plant species versus just corn or soybeans. And, you know, we produce something in a fashion that consumers are much uh, more friendly to being open to and excited about buying when it's uh, raised. And so, therefore, increasing the value for the farmer to retain sovereignty and be an independent producer, which is, that was, the, we wanted to make a better system for farmers. And rural communities, uh, not to be Luddites and like go back, uh, back in time, but uh, to make to make something that was you know similar to that, but with new technology and and try to restore, um, I think which was what was a better way of way of rural life. Um, and if you're cutting out half of all of your corn crop in order to be able to make these paths for the for the stock cropper. Uh, how are you going to make up that that price difference? So the fun thing in this system is uh, the corn really becomes irrelevant because the corn is not, you know, it's hard for people to think about because most people raise corn like in Iowa now. Six out of every ten bushels goes to an ethanol plant. Well, we didn't have Is that, that right? Yeah. Six out of ten? Yeah. That's why the carbon pipelines are pretty important because if we can't, 60% of our market goes to making ethanol. 
And I think nationally it's four out of 10 goes to ethanol. So if ethanol, you know, goes away, uh, it's a big problem, huge problem for people that have made the investments in infrastructure. Um, and so uh, I lost my train of thought. So we're talking about the livestock relative to the corn because you're cutting yes, out half yeah, of your there you corn. Go. So uh, in our in our system, though, we're we're trying to raise the foodstuffs to feed back to the non-ruminant animals. So we're not feeding uh, like our sheep and our goats or if you put cattle, we're just allowing them to graze the pasture. But for animals like pigs and chickens, a lot of people think you can just grass feed them, but it would take uh, five years in a day to finish an animal without um, because they have a, they have a different stomach. They're, they're not ruminants. And so. They need to have a starch and a protein in order to build muscle. And so the idea is that we would grow uh, those crops next door to them the year prior and then grind them in the yard and feed them back and make this closed-loop closed system where really the, the revenue-generating part of the system is the value of the livestock. And it's the value of what you can produce in this stacked enterprise intelligence system is substantially higher than what you can uh, do um, theoretically, uh, than a, just a monocrop field of corn or soybeans. And the amount, I assume, that a person would be willing to pay for a pig that's been mm-hmm. pasture-raised for his whole life, he's just been out rooting around in the dirt, eating yeah. this, is going to be a higher price than yeah. what you're going to get from the Correct. It's a store. differentiated product, 100%. Yeah. And so what's the what's the process been like? How, how far have you gotten in, in building this? Yeah, so we started in uh, February 2020. Uh, it was actually, yeah, it was actually Memorial Day weekend, which we're coming up on. We built the first barn. We built it in less than a week. And that was kind of in the middle of all of our other farm operation stuff. And it was really stressful, but we launched it in the world June 14th, 2020, right in the, right in the middle of COVID. And, uh, we ended up, we, we kind of argued over whether or not to put it on the internet and share it. Uh, but we decided to, and that was the best decision we ever could have made. Uh, it got amplified by a lot of folks. Uh, Jason Mock, who's been on your podcast and you know uh, was a huge early supporter of it, he asked us to come to his first field day. And and that led to a whole chain of other events that have come along, um, ending up uh, partnering with uh, Joe Bassett of Don Equipment, who has a really uh, forward-thinking uh, small or medium-sized uh, egg manufacturing or equipment manufacturing company that's interested in this regenerative building products to support regenerative uh, agricultural practices. And he kind of looked at what we'd come up with stock cropper as kind of the pinnacle of what a soil health product line could be built around in building these barns. And so we forged that relationship. Um, the first year we did not get the barn to be autonomous. We just, we advanced the barn. I should, I didn't explain that. We advanced the barn several times a day uh, based off of the animals grazing them down. So we don't want them to go hungry. So they keep moving in. So two or three times a day, the barns would move and that would keep them satiated. Well, you did this on your farm. Yes. So you ended up doing the cropping the way you described yep. with the with the pads. And then a couple times a day, you're going out there and moving the pens. Yep. But we had uh, we did it with a cable system and a winch. So I took an old winch that I had off another piece of farm equipment that was designed to hook onto anhydrous tanks and pull them up closer. And we just said, well, we're not using it. Let's just throw it on the barn because we had it and we didn't have to buy it. And we hooked it to a tractor at the end of the pasture run. And my, uh, my, my hired guy who lived on the site, he would go out and just hit the button on the winch and the barn would go... 11 feet ahead and it would stop and uh and did just, those goats go running forward to get some oh, new yeah. grass 
Yeah, they absolutely loved it. And the chickens go nuts because if there's bugs, you know, grasshoppers. Last year we had a really dry year in the system. There's all sorts of grasshoppers. Chickens just went apeshit to eat grasshoppers. And so you could see their excitement. Their heads are just going nuts, and they can't hardly keep up with them all jumping, and they would just go. So, you know, uh, getting rid of the pests with with an animal instead of having to go out and spray something. Uh, You know, it's just there's so many things I've been trained in the I've been in big agriculture for my whole career, like 20 years. And like, there's so many things that this has just kind of opened my eyes up to what is possible with. Things. Yeah. And that's no joke. I mean, you were a seed salesman for one of the best companies in the country. Like yeah. you're, you were like, you I sold, legit. I sold, uh, most uh, over half of my career, 15 years I spent selling all I did. I, I was, I was a chemical salesman. I have sold shit tons of glyphosate <laughs> and everything else, fungicides, pests. And I was good at it and I understood it. And, it's not that, but I don't, I, I don't want to say that I think that, uh, I know there's a big push to go like completely organic. And, but I think a lot of people that make those claims really don't know what that means at scale. And so I try to have a position of, yeah, I, a lot of things can have value. There's good things. I mean, it's important to be, have a stable, uh, abundant food supply, but, um, it's also important, I think, to ask the questions to make sure we truly understand of what's happening. And I think when you just look around, at the condition of human beings in this country, something is wrong uh, with just health and appearance and uh, our culture around well-being. And it starts with, in my opinion, it starts with soil and food um, and the culture around that. And this idea of convenience and quick hitting tastes, you know, immediate uh, satisfaction, I think, um, you know, we don't sit, you know, just, uh, we don't sit down and have meals as families. We don't, uh, that's not venerated anymore. And so there's just a whole lot of things, uh, that I think that we can make improvements on, uh, and how we look at food and, and soil. And all I that. think the, the one thing that really struck me since I've been doing the podcast just in the last year, I interviewed a guy named Laszlo Barabasi. And so he's like a network scientist. He's actually like considered the godfather of modern network science And he was like, I think the things we're adding into food, like additives and preservatives, like, I think they might be doing more to our bodies than we realize. And he was saying, like, there's just a whole bunch of signals inside of your body that you get hormones and different things just that are triggered by chemicals around your body. Mm -hmm. I just never thought of it. And then when you start looking at it, my wife and I decided to make the transition. Like, all right, we got little girls. How can we make food as whole as possible? And, uh, you know. It's hard to know whether or not that made some big difference. But when you start looking at the number of chemicals that you ingest, and I'm not like a, a fraidy cat of chemicals, yeah. like I'm, I, right. but it is something that I mean, you work it, for Monsanto, yeah, <laughs> right? Like, and I mean, like, I, I, and, and there I learned a lot about how, like, hey, there's trade offs. Yeah, you, you, you're right. You don't have to use chemicals, right? But if you don't, you're uh to if you're not going to do that then you need to send people out to pull those weeds yeah, and organic farming like the way that it's done at scale is terrible for the soil like there's Whoa, say that say more about that oh my gosh uh you were really going to piss some listeners off but yeah but, but hit it hard then, go ahead go look at what it looks like <laughs> okay yeah i'll look at the camera and say that go look at what it actually looks like because uh, from a soil health standpoint and soil sustainability, that's one of the things I'm most passionate about. We'll, we'll get into that, I'm sure. But like uh, organic farming, like crop farming anyway, uh, is dependent on about 14 passes of tillage because when you don't have chemicals like they didn't 100 years ago, 
you had to go out and either manually pull stuff or use steel uh, through the earth, uh, which I don't think people... It, back then, it, I don't think people were conscious of what that was doing. But when you till ground, I mean, the first thing I learned in agronomy uh, course at Iowa State is that tillage is a destructive force in the soil. And in order to people make... People don't even know what tillage is. This is when you hook an implement onto the back of the tractor. Will you tell it? Yeah, exactly. What you just said, you hook an implement to the tractor and you go through and disturb... Uh, the soil. And there's lots of reasons for it that there's things from a production standpoint that are beneficial. You can kill weeds. Uh, you can turn the ground blacker to help it warm up. That's a big reason, especially in like the northern latitudes when you need to get in the spring. There's there's definite benefits uh, to doing that. But when you do it at nauseum and over and over, you basically pulverize the, the strength and the rigidity of the soil to hold itself together and you start to have soil erosion uh, water erosion, wind erosion, the event that happened in Illinois, you know, less than a month ago where we had a 100-car pileup on... Uh, yeah, I, what was that all about? I-55. Well, uh, it's it's something that happens every year, and it just happened in the wrong spot at the wrong time where uh, some farm fields... I don't know the specifics, so if you're from that area and, you, and I've got egg in my face, so be it. I've seen it enough. I had it happen around my house last year. Uh, we had a terrible windstorm on Memorial Day, and it it was just, it looked like 1936 Dust Bowl, you know, uh, where when soil is detached and it doesn't have any cover in the spring and it's bare, like right after planting season, um, the wind can come along. And once you have 50 or 60 mile an hour winds, the wrong weather event, it causes the soil particles to detach and they start doing what's called saltation and they bounce across the surface. And when they bounce, that energy hits another soil particle and it detaches that and it just becomes this combustible edison and snowballs and eventually you get to the point where you have so much soil blowing in the air that you cannot physically see and that's what happened on the i-55 uh, crash and there was seven people killed uh because they couldn't see uh because there was so much soil blowing in the air now though I'm, i don't think that was organic uh production specifically there but when you look at organic crop farming in Iowa, uh, there's some pockets of it, and uh, the soil erosion is absolutely horrendous. So there's trade-offs. That's why I'm not I'm not uh, completely against uh, all chemicals because um, it's just not as simple as saying organic is best. I think honestly, I think a system like stock cropper has a ton of potential for organic because uh, I think we have a better system design that can fix some of those problems and not make it as reliant. You know, a goat can eat a hell of a lot of water hemp. You know, and so if we just change how we're using tools, different tools, better tools, uh, create value that way by thinking a little bit differently. So. So talk about um, where where you are right now. Can people go out and buy a stock cropper um, system? So we've been, you know, we've been really experimenting over the last uh, three seasons. Last year was our third season with figuring out the first season was like does this crazy ass idea even work? Yes. Okay. So the next step was, okay, how do we make it autonomous? Because the only way it's not scalable to have somebody go out, pull a machine with a tractor three times a day, or even go out and click a button three times a day. Cause imagine if you do this at scale, you're going to have, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60 of maybe 80 of these barns on a quarter section of land. So you need to have it so that the things will um, move on themselves. So we, we, started working on making a barn that would go on its own, which is a big undertaking uh, to do. And we bootstrapped this all of ourselves uh, between myself and Joe Bassett at Dawn. 
And uh, so we've, uh, we're getting to the point. We, we uh, debuted that successfully in late 21. We worked more on that last year in 22. And as we're sitting here today, we're finishing up work at uh, the facility in Milwaukee to uh, have a, a reconfiguration and hopefully launch that system out. And we're going to actually, for people who know uh, the precision planting site in Pontiac, Illinois, one of our barns is uh, aimed to be hopefully there within the next two weeks uh, to be on demonstration with um, uh, at their uh, PTI farm uh, with a lot of the other plots that they have. And... Uh, um, also am developing, I haven't talked about this publicly a lot yet, but I'm developing a backyard autonomous uh, poultry uh, barn for people in on homesteads or urban areas to give them the ability to have an intelligent device to manage livestock, which makes it simpler, allows them still to be able to go to the lake on the weekend and, and not have to have somebody come over and chore and makes uh, gets more people interested in protein sovereignty. Uh, with producing, oh, you had my wife ready to buy buy a cluster yeah. cluck like dude, last night. You ready to go? To explain it. So if you got a backyard, what what happens? So if you have a backyard, you buy you'll buy this uh, device from us. It's uh, going to be constructed like uh, with an IKEA design where you buy it in a box and it's incredibly easy to assemble. You need like you know we'll need like three tools that would maybe come with it, flat packable. Uh, very commonsensical things, but very well built and engineered to last. Uh, you know, a lot of these things that you can buy, the kits for like a backyard, they might last five, six years and the wood starts to rot and then you just, you have a problem in your yard. The other problem with those things is they just sit there and they just accumulate manure and you don't get any benefit out of, you know. And so if you had a device that could work itself across your property and uh, feed your lawn instead of buying Scots from, you know, Lowe's or Menards or, you know, whatever your local uh, garden store like you're building that value and you're you know if you have like little kids like you do like you know they get exposure to what food production is they have some semblance of like understanding like they can go out and collect the eggs or if you had broiler chickens they could uh you know we were talking about last night like you know what if you made your own meat instead of just saying well we're going to give this to somebody else to do the mess like what if we our our children like actually understood where food comes from and they have they de develop the the respect of the process that it is what it is to kill an animal and then harvest the meat and understand then preparing it and it's it's a like when I've shown it to other people uh, it's a trans you know it's a transformative process for people that have never been around it it's really powerful and it's not going to be for for everybody uh, but I think there's a lot of people especially coming out of COVID where when they went to the grocery store for the first time and like there was not protein on the shelf, like what are we going to do? And they have no skill set to, to counter that with anything. And so, and not really the facilities. I mean, you can build a, a little hen house in your oh, backyard, sure. but this is a pretty neat thing because this would be like, like people dream of having their mobile um, or their autonomous lawnmower. But this is like putting a box out there. You have a slot for feed. You have a slot for water. You put the, the chickens in there and starting after they get acclimated, they're going to be chewing, eating up the bugs in your field and then producing eggs. Yeah. And now you go out there and if you've got 12 eggs, you're getting a dozen eggs a day. Yeah, it's designed, uh, it's designed to hold a dozen hens, which gives you a dozen eggs a day for a family of four. That, that's about what a family of four, if they eat eggs consistently for breakfast, you know, would maybe consume. And um, it's really, yeah, it's really designed for people that want to... Uh, 
or or you like I said, you could put broiler chickens. It would house twenty five broilers from the square footage. So if and twenty five is a number that is manageable. If you wanted to actually process your own chickens, uh, it's not hard to do. Uh, you could you know you have have your family sit down on a Saturday afternoon and you could process twenty five chickens and put them in your freezer and and have you know if the next thing hits or whatever you know World War Three comes. Uh, and you still have electricity to keep it cold. You've got meat in the freezer, um, and the best thing is you grew it yourself. You knew you knew exactly how it was made. Uh, a lot of people used to know this art, and they would gather. It was a community activity, and that's what really got me passionate about it. My family, a buddy and I, started butchering all of our own meat about twelve or thirteen years ago, and it came from just two guys into doing it trying to figure it out like literally reading a book and like looking at a hog hanging on a hook and like okay what's next and like we had no idea it was kind of a disaster the first year uh but then we got through it and we're like we told people like, oh you killed a pig and you actually butchered it and made your own bacon and ham I'm like yeah he's like that sounds pretty cool can i come can i get a pig and it just kept building and building and it turned into this great thing where the weekend before thanksgiving for the last 12 years like that's we 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 butcher stock crop or pork and then we have thanksgiving and like that's the tradition and we gather and it's a uh, i don't know it's, we have probably close to a dozen people that participate in it now and uh it's kind of a selective club to get into to be invited to do it because it's a special thing and you got to show up and work and uh but it's a there's not a lot of real things like that anymore you know it's people picking up their cell phones and seeing what's trending and like it's 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 boring and stale and like i think i think people are going to be hungry to uh, to do real stuff again so. yeah i think the the idea of doing this like in my legacy interviews there's two things that you've said that have really struck me one is the number of stories that women tell me about when they were little girls about having to go collect the eggs and getting attacked by a rooster i've heard stories like that many times and it's a formative one right yeah. because you'll hear a, a woman say I was attacked by the rooster and dad didn't believe me. And finally I killed the rooster. One time dad went out and he saw the rooster pecking me and he killed it right in front of me. And you know, that taught me about the facts of life. I mean, these yeah. are things that people are remembering 80 years yeah. later and it's a really important one. And the other one, and I, I mentioned this to you when you talked about the having your slaughter and your meat is, um, or is men used to do this at church groups. There used to be like, we're going to have the, the, the men's club sausage breakfast where the men actually came and produced the sausage. They were cutting up the hog. They were, you know, putting it through the grinder. And this is something that like, clearly we used to know mm -hmm. that, that processing your own food together as a community has like some, some deep, some deep meaning creation. Yeah. A hundred percent. And, and, you know, and, and now we've regulated it to death where we've made it seem like it's an untouchable thing. But, you know, you take a couple of basic precautions. And, I mean, I'd rather – I'd take my chances on me butchering versus buying, uh, you know, buying from a store any day of the week. So, yeah. it. It's, the first time you ever do meat, though, I, I'm sure you've plucked a few chickens in your in oh, your yeah. time. Like, that's no joke. That's real work. It is. Like, like uh, you, you – it gives you a whole new appreciation. I remember when I was in, in Kenya – I had eaten chicken people had prepared for me that I had watched them. And you hear that like pluck, 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 pluck sound as you're pulling the feathers out. And then one time I decided like, oh, I can do this on my own. And if you're a little lazy and you don't actually pull the feathers out or the feathers that are underneath the yeah. skin that you don't get, yeah. then you're eating dinner yeah. and you're like, 
Yeah, wow. what is that? There's a little <laughs> bit of a quill. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's the thing. Like, so, uh, I wa- so people don't know what a chicken plucker is. You should Google it. It's a wonderful device uh, that you throw the chicken in after you've uh, dropped it into 155, 160 degree water. Allows the feathers to release and it's like just a washing drum with fingers and it uh, pulls all the, like in 10 seconds, you can have all the feathers off and it, oh, man. it makes a it a million changer. times easier to do it. So, <laughs> and you can even have attachments for like cordless drills that will do it. Uh, that, you know, would cost you 15 bucks at Lowe's to create your own thing to, and that's, that's kind of the idea is like, I want to not only make a barn, but like, I want to, I want to make a brand around facilitating these activities for people to to be, get closer back to understanding you know food production real food production and i the really interesting thing is farmers talk about all the time it just drives me insane when i see them talking about how we feed the world we feed the world we're so mighty we feel most farmers if the shit hit the fan could not feed themselves that's going to piss some people off but my dad raised hogs for 30 years he never once butchered an animal First time he butchered a hog is when I did it, and it was just off of a whim. And um, you know, we we produce commodities, and uh, and that those eventually get turned into to food in some form or fashion. But you know, you, there's not that many victory gardens. I mean, out on farm sites, uh, I I just I think we're we're overly proud, or uh, as an industry, on uh, boasting about that when most of us couldn't feed ourselves if the lights went out. I mean, to be fair, though, like the way that the government put money into the system, you had to get big or go home and you had to specialize. And that specialization didn't include I'm going to do this robust, you know, I'm going to raise pigs and also feed them like there's no to me like and we voted for the politicians. Right. It's it's our fault. But like we have the farming system that our government wants us to have, which is as efficient as humanly possible to keep the prices as low as possible so that way as our dollars lose their value you can still get you know a a decent amount of food absolutely yeah like i said before the policy directs what we have if we have shit policy we're going to have shit results and i think that's where we're at i i would push back that i think there's a lot of intelligent people that know better in the system you know i've i've sat in boardrooms with some of the top execs in, in agriculture and you have these sidebar conversations. And when you talk about stuff like this, they know. But their duty is to the shareholder, you know. And that's, it's, so much of what we do in this business is based off of, are we going to hit Q4 numbers, you know? Can we pay the bank loan off at the end of the year? We have a very, very short-sighted view of what this business should be. And it's why we don't take a lot of these external things in that have very much a much longer time window of impact, Um than what anybody else is really talking about. I mean, that's the biggest problem with inflation. Like I'm, I'm in the world where people talk all the time about inflation. And the thing that I think is hitting us the hardest is the inflation of land prices. Mm -hmm. And it is because as that price goes up, you have less and less ability to take chances and you have to do whatever is going to make it so you can pay that bank note. And like, I think this has been a thing that's been happening for 30 to 40 years, maybe even longer than that. But like this, the the more the government pumps into uh, the money into the economy so that the price of land goes up, it means the more people are going to have to fight for efficiencies mm-hmm. and you're going to do less and less long term thinking about your land than than if you found a way to have hard money. It's 100 percent right. And, you know, you look at uh 
you look at ethanol policy, I mean, that was, you know, that mandate came through. You're just looking to just piss everyone off. No, I'm not looking at you. Listen, uh, I am a corn and soybean farmer. Everything that I'm talking about is financially in, not in my best interest. I sell 75, 80% of my corn to an ethanol plant. So uh, I get it. So if you're saying like this guy's, you know, this, this viewpoint is hippie, he doesn't know what the hell he's talking about. Like I'm in this business. I just see the other things coming. You know, Elon Musk has plans and people can say, well, that'll never happen with EVs. But like, what are we going to do next? And, you know, if you bought $25,000 an acre land in Northwest Iowa, and I just said six out of 10 bushels goes through an ethanol plant, it's something that was created by our demand that was, uh, you know, created essentially by the government to push toward reducing emissions, uh, which I think is a good thing. But there, now there's other things that are could potentially do it, you know, and be and replace that. It's a uh, it's a major consequence. And this push towards scale has had the thing I'm really pa- one of the things I'm really passionate about and have been for a long time is uh, the soil and conservation and all of the thoughts of thing you know when you maximize corn production the way that corn is grown or soybeans are grown um, the loss of soil is one of the last things that gets taken place and like if you're if you're a student of history you know that's been a problem of other civilizations i've said that before but when you look at what we've lost in farming uh the corn belt in the last 125 or 40 years or whatever it's been we've lost a third of our actual topsoil we've lost half of our organic matter you know, organic matter is the gold. It's the Bitcoin in the soil that has all of the value. And uh, we have policy that does not take that into account in a serious way at all. And it's something that I'm passionate about because we can't just rebuild it. It takes 500 years to build an inch of soil. Like it took thousands and thousands of years after the glaciers went across places in Iowa, you know, to, to make the richest soil in the world. And we treat it like shit. Uh, and we have policy that does not take that into account. And that's something I think uh, a lot more people, if you're really interested in feeding the world, you know, I went to so many chemical things. I'm sure meetings you're at where they have that, that thumping, you know, uh, club beat music, feed the world by 2050, 9 billion people, you know, and like, I would used to get pumped up. Like we got a fungicide, we got to do all this stuff to do it. But like, who cares about 2050? What about 2060? If we like, if the goal is 2050 and we do all this bad stuff in the meanwhile to, to make the, like we're depending on this technology wagon coming out of companies like, you know, Corteva and Syngenta and BASF and, and Bayer, like, and we're dependent on that. Like, can we, is technology always going, can we have a crappier medium from our farming practice getting worse? And are they always going to deliver that tech to get us over that next to the next drought, you know, gene or whatever else? And and my contention is that eventually that hits a, a wall where it's just it becomes physically um, impossible to do that. And we still have a hungry world to feed. And I think uh, we need to think less. We need to start building that in and not thinking just about Q4, but uh, Q4 in 2089, not just Q4 in 2023. Well, one of the things I've wondered about is how the ag companies are going to respond when they finally fully realize, like, wait, we aren't going to actually hit nine point whatever billion people. Right. In fact, the numbers may go down. Yeah. Like, what does the marketing change when the <laughs> when when the world begins to recognize like, oh, wait, actually, population collapse is our big issue we're going to have way less people because you're no longer going to be able to be like, we got to do more with less. Now you got to change it. And I don't, I mean like, 
we'll see who the first one to abscond from the herd is. But eventually, farmers are going to start being like, no, we don't, uh, no, no, we don't need to feed more with less. We're going to have less people. How should we think about this? Right. Yeah. I. It's uh, it's going to be interesting to see. I've I've read a lot of stuff both ways on that, but I I I do see it. I mean, you see, you see what birth rates are doing. Uh, people waiting, you know, later in life, a lot of people uh, just not interested in, in settling down or getting married and, and having kids. And I think it's a, it's a real deal all over the place. Well, you and I are the same age and yeah. it is shocking to me. You have a daughter that just graduated high yeah. school and I'm sitting there with a 10 month old throwing yeah. her cup on the ground. Yeah. It was a trip to see the contrast of like watching my daughter uh, give her commencement address and like it, it did. It seemed like yesterday that I was in your shoes. So yeah, it is wild to be the yeah. But we'll be empty nesters here. We, our other daughter graduates next year, and we'll uh, we'll be done at the age of forty four and forty three. So. What will you miss about being a father with daughters at home? <laughs> well, now you got me. Just give me a second here. I'll get this out. I think probably the, um, the, the, the need to, the immediate need to teach and give guidance, even when it's not wanted, I think when they're not there to, that'll come, you know, that'll, that'll be there when they go off to college, but like being needed, um, in, in an intimate way like that, where you have other people that look to you for, for help and direction and the thought of <clears throat> that going away and just not seeing him come up the stairs, you know, in the morning, <laughs> you really kicked me in the nuts there with that question, but it's good. It's real. So I mean, that's, that's uh it's a good way to remind yourself when you're going through the hard things. Cause I mean, mm-hmm. like last night, you know, you're sitting at the dinner table, I'm trying to eat steak <laughs> with my buddy and you know, my other daughter yeah. is like, uh, you know, screaming and needs like time alone and, and like, you could resent the amount that your child needs you or you can embrace yeah, it. And to see you, to see you be like the way you are, makes you, makes it much easier to be like, this is a flower that's blossoming. It's the good I, stuff. Yeah. It doesn't last forever. And it's like, it was humbling to be there. Cause like, it just seemed in, <clears throat> you know, that's a whole nother tangent, but I've spent, I was so focused my entire career until like two years ago of just focusing on, striving to put in the extra effort and work 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 the farm growing the farm growing the business and like customers calling at 6 30 at night or eight o'clock at night and i'm sitting down or I'm, and i'm taking calls and not giving them time and attention that's a major problem you know the expectations of like 24 7 drop everything screw your family screw the fact that you got a game like the work-life balance in agriculture is uh, i think there's more light getting shed i think my generation and younger are getting better at that uh, but man, I missed a lot of stuff for the pursuit of something. I don't know. There's good and bad that comes with it. Cause part of that put me in a position to be here and doing this, but you know, yeah, there's a real trade-off, right? Yeah. And it's like a very, very difficult one to make because if you say, ah, I'm going to just stop and smell the roses for 18 years. Like you can't, you can't, somebody you else can't leave, your, eat you up if, yeah. you, if you do Or I shouldn't, it's not, I, but it's uh you the reason I built my business is because I I did what I did. I would go above and beyond and that was my brand. And when you when you don't do that, then you're just like everyone else. And 
I, but I, I do have regrets about that. So I don't have many regrets in life, but that's one of them that I was so focused on serving other people than my family. And which it's funny after the fact, like I still have some good customers that I stay in contact with, but I thought like I had a personal relationship with these people and they really appreciate it. When I went away, like it, it went away too, you know, and it didn't, didn't mean anything. My kids are still there, you know? So, um, I'm grateful to have the opportunities that I've had. And I'm really, really grateful to be independent now and to be able to, like to last week, I would have the time to just focus on my daughter's graduation. If I was working for somebody, if I was still in the seed business in the middle of plant season, you know, but I enjoyed it. And I, I wasn't uh, beholden to anybody else's time during that important time for, for her. So, yeah, you know that uh, you've been a good house guest that's won my wife over. If before we go to bed, she's like, you know, what advice do you have? What what, do you, <laughs> what advice do you have for, for people, for, for me? I mean, we're the same age, but you've gone through the yeah. thing. What sh- how should I be thinking about raising my daughters? I think the thing I've witnessed in, like, raising my own kids and then watching how other people raise kids is that I don't think uh, – Kids need to be told no more. They need to be taught like real respect. I think one of the biggest problems uh, in in the education system, and this is this doesn't matter if it's prov- public, private, homeschool. I don't care. If kids aren't taught to, you know, my dad had a saying: if if uh, schools were effective at what they did, you'd have reason to be concerned because ninety percent of it starts at home. And I think there's been a huge shift in in parenting uh, that has not been positive, and it. And it raises, uh, it produces children that are very, very hard to manage and I think even teach to. And I think there's a big problem with self-accountability in our, in our culture. People want to blame somebody else for the, if we have a problem, you know, and that's the thing I appreciated with you last night. You know, you were uh, fretting over your daughter's behavior, but I told you like, Vance, like, she's great. Like, you you need to go visit some other households and see how, <laughs> how kids kids behave, you know. But uh, yeah, teaching accountability, giving responsibility—that's you know things like having a chicken tractor that they're responsible for. And if something goes wrong, you know, and and they don't shut the door, and a coyote comes in the yard and kills the chickens, you go out and make them look at that. You know, you're responsible for things. There's impacts on your actions in life, and I think our culture has a real, real problem with accountability and it goes all the way to the top, you know, top of the country, all the, all the levels just push the blame. It's bullshit. You know, it's, it drives me nuts. Uh, and then teach them to do real things, real skills. You know, a phone is not a skill. Um, you know, we, we allowed our kids to have cell phones, uh, because we thought we needed to. And that was, uh, in hindsight, it hasn't been terrible for them because they're fairly balanced uh, in other ways. But um, it's that stuff is not good. If I had to start over, my kids would not have uh, Snapchat or uh, TikTok or uh, especially with girls. Instagram, I think, is terrible uh, for these images that they're they're thinking that they need to be beholden to. And um, in a lot of ways, there's it's good to be connected. I mean, stock croppers here because of Twitter, you know, like. So there, there yeah, is. Yeah, that's the tough tension, isn't it? Yeah, right? and it's like this balance, and that's what you know. Like I was telling you and your wife this morning, like I don't know that everything should just be banned or taken away, but I think people, parents, need to get off their own damn phones and start paying more attention to their kids. You know, you can blame the kids on the phones, but they're the parent, and I'm guilty as as the rest. You know, I'm and my wife would say this. She'd 
yeah, she'd lay into me. But yeah, I spend too much time looking at it and not paying attention. And there's a there's a cost to that. And teaching kids how to communicate, how to look somebody in the eye, how to hold a conversation. It's embarrassing, like what I've witnessed with other kids that don't have uh, a support system at home that drives those basic principles that our generation took for granted in generations before, you know, the, the ability to communicate uh, and write, like, I don't know, it's, there's benefits to it, but I think we've gone backwards uh, in a lot of ways, lost our sense of humanity. Yeah, I, uh, for myself, I started to realize, like, I would not want my daughters to treat me the way that I treat them with my phone by being like, no, I have this important Mm -hmm. thing. So I started deleting social media off my phone. And at first I was like, how can I do this? But when I got Twitter off my phone, I still have it. I can still use it on my computer. But when I got it off my phone, the number of times that I was drawn to looking at that thing, Mm -hmm. it wasn't huge, but I bet it went down 5 to 10%. Oh, yeah. Right? And then that all of a sudden starts changing what you're viewing around you. And then I I try and think like, all right, I need to as quickly as I possibly can model the way that I want them to treat me when they eventually have a phone, because I will be bitter and resentful if Mm -hmm. they're talking to me in the middle of a conversation and putting their head down and looking at it. So like, I got to make damn sure I'm not doing that. And I've been a failure at that. So good on you for recognizing it. And uh, I think most people probably are. I've had, this conversation with some of my really good friends and uh, the parents are the example. I think our generation has been a failure at parenting. When I look at the results, not saying that there's not good kids out there, but I, I don't, and I don't know why it is, but as a whole, when you look at the problems and the, uh, that, that are existing in society now, like I think we need to all look ourselves in the mirror instead of blaming somebody else, blame, you know, it's somebody else's fault. Look yourself in the mirror and, and then be honest it's kind of the same stuff I'm talking about with ag, you know, somebody else's fault, uh, not our problem. I just accountability needs to be addressed. So if you could design a curriculum so that regular Americans could understand uh, soil and um, water, what are things that people should learn in high school about the way food is grown? Uh, yeah, I, I think it. I you know, vocational agriculture uh, in a lot of places has gone away, you know, because they're, especially even in rural America, it's like a lot of these farm towns don't even have FFA chapters because there's hardly any farm kids, right? You know, the number of family-aged farmers, and I mean, the average age is like, what, 60 now, I think. And so there's not even a critical mass of people that are remotely interested, but, you know, just uh, basics of, of chemistry and, and uh, uh, you know, I don't know if home ec... I don't know if home ec is still a thing. My mom was a home ec teacher. Um, I haven't worried about that because my girls cook and like my wife is really good about teaching those things. But like those skills of understanding the importance of food and, and, you know, a balanced meal, you know, and not going to, you know, Mackers and, and ordering, you know, four number sixes, like, you know, uh, sitting down and and eating together as a family. And, uh, um, but just being more aware. And like, that's the thing, like have a garden, you know, it's not something, I mean, I guess, yeah, you can make that part of a curriculum, but like learning what it is and, and learning the difference between, you know, what happens to soil when, uh, you know, it's mismanaged and, you know, how do you keep a crop healthy and what are, you know, how do pests work? And like people are so disconnected from food, you know, and like there's so few people, like it's less than, when you look at the actual number of farmers, it's like less than half of a percent of the general population are, are raising all the food. And most people have 
no idea. I mean, even people in rural, small Iowa towns in the middle of all of it, you know, I went and talked at the high school last week, and there were no farm kids in that class, zero. And their concept, being surrounded by all of this food production, they couldn't tell you how it was being produced, you know? Then there's you know, So let's talk more in detail, because I think, you know, a whole bunch of my listeners are in the ag community, but a lot of them aren't. So if you were selling chemistry and fungicides, like what are the problems that a, a farmer is facing and what are their options to, to solve it when it comes to things trying to eat their crops? Yeah, so a lot of the problems uh, that we have are created by the system itself. So we don't really, I mean, we have a crop rotation in Iowa uh, for the most, I mean, if you call it, most people like that understand ecological systems would not call corn and soybeans a crop rotation because you know, when my great-grandfather would farm, I mean, he had like five or six different crops, and it was rotated in an intelligent form because they didn't have a pesticide solution. But when we got pesticides, it gave us the utility to just grow one or two things. And if there was a problem that resulted from that, like, uh, you know, European corn borer or extended diapause from rootworm beetles in corn that would – they figured out, they evolved over time. So rootworm beetles attack corn, they lay eggs – if corn isn't there the next year to feed on, they die. Well, that works good enough until evolution and uh, Mr. Darwin comes along and the rootworm beetles figure out to lay their eggs and they go through something called extended diapause where the eggs don't hatch that year. They wait the next year for the corn and to come back. And then all of a sudden, you, I did a rotation. I did this cultural practice and now we have this insect that's evolved. And so now we need to go... Uh, we need to go and buy insecticide. Well, insecticide sucks, and you know, because as a farmer, like you, and I sold it. Like you know, we get, bring the insecticide in the shed, and if there were any birds in the shed, they were dead, you know, on the floor. And uh, like you put it as a farmer on, and you get a little on your hands, and you know, they're nerve agents, and you start feeling it in your hands. And I've had it happen. Yeah, I've handled it, and those things are real. So then you're like, well, that's not good. So then you go to uh, Monsanto and say, we would really like uh, a solution in the bag and the seeds. The seed is engineered to be effective at uh, controlling those things. And so that's what that was my game for 20 years is helping farmers navigate options within the confines of the monocropping system. But it not just it's not just uh, insects, uh, you know, fungus, same way. Uh, weeds, you know, weeds, uh, I think weeds could be a, a, a enormous challenge for our current farming system because we're on the last limb of the the technology and the pipeline for the next 10 years to control tough to control weeds like water hemp but we have a system that has self-selected for that and we've used single modes of control which lead to resistance and we don't ever seem to learn that i think we've gotten better but like now we've exhausted roundup used you know when i started selling chemistry it was so easy to do once we got Roundup Ready corn because I would ask a customer, how many acres of corn do you have? How many acres of soybeans do you have? And my, I went to my calculator, and I would take acres of corn, acres of beans, times 64 ounces. Here's your invoice. Here's some ammonium sulfate. Here's some volunteer corn killer. Uh, and that was it. It was very, very – it made it idiot-proof, okay? And we did idiot-proof things for three or four years. Because for people that don't know – at this time, Roundup will go kill any plant that's out there as it soon as it incredible. touches it. But if you have the Roundup Ready gene inside of you, then when the when the um, pesticide hits it, 
Now it says, hey, don't don't die. You're going to be just right. fine. Just keep growing. Right. And so uh, it made bad farmers look like good farmers because the judgment of a farmer when I was growing up was how clean was your fields. And the herbis- there was no such thing as a herbicide that would just kill everything. And so when Round of Pretty Crops came out, soybeans first in 96, then I think corn was like 99. And then it was when I got into ag retail is really when it got up to like 90 to 95% adoption. But then we started having problems, and it's like, well, gosh, now we got to figure a way to manage out of this. And so we started introducing new chemistries or new traits to help us do that. But then we just used the shit out of them because it's what we know. It's easy. It works really good until it doesn't, and then we create. And we've been doing that now for the last 30 years, and, like, uh, I'm out of the game now for a couple of years, so maybe there's something new coming in the pipeline. But when I left the game, there was not anything novel or new. No, I mean, it is so difficult to get a chemistry through the regulatory pipeline that most companies won't even do it because you could get all the way through. You've done all this R&D. You've spent hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars, and uh, and then they just say, no, we, we aren't yeah. going to. And so what they're doing is they're going back to old 70s chemicals like dicamba, and they're saying, mm-hmm. ah, we put a new a new surfactant in it so it doesn't lift off the fields when there's a temperature inversion and go in a big fog off to go kill other things and maybe it does and maybe it doesn't i don't know but like that that was a lie i'll say it on the podcast so that's uh we don't have to go down that wormhole but uh yeah they're but the the reason they're doing it is because if they are going to return a an investment for their shareholders, mm-hmm. the danger of going through and trying to do R and D is just too high. Absolutely, yeah. And I would say I would even push back on your description about the good farmers and bad farmers. I would go back to the idea that I think this is inflationary pressure. I think they do not have time to like go and make managed decisions and what happens if this doesn't work in in order to stay in the game they were focused on being efficient to be able to pay that bank note because yeah if you aren't willing to pay it the next guy is willing to pay more and if you can't bring the price i mean because commodities are always going to go to just exactly the price of Mm -hmm. of production and if somebody else is going to do it right next to you cheaper you're going to lose your land eventually yeah yeah perhaps but uh the thing I would push back is, though, that there are people out there that do know better on some of these things, and they they go along quietly with it, and it doesn't help long-term in the situation. That's the pushback. But you're 100% right in describing why why we have a lot of the issues that we have. It is Farming is a business, and you need to stay in business, and you need to make money, and so you play the game. My dad always said, you got to play the game, and you play the game as, as best as you can. But I'm one that I, I'm in a position now where I can be – I learned a lot in 20 years. Uh, I understand the game pretty well. Um, but I have nothing to lose in questioning it right now because my, my motivation is it's not to <laughs> – I have – well, I, maybe stock cropper takes off and I make money. I really uh, – I mean, I want it to be successful, but I, I'm more – I want a better – and there's a lot of people in this space that I think want the same things. They want just a better future for – this business because it's it's an incredible business the, to be able to grow food it's so satisfying to 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 grow a crop and to see it and take it to harvest and it's it's an incredible way to make a living it's just uh i i think we can do better and that's what i i aim to try to push sometimes i probably push too hard and i'm sure there's a lot of people that don't like my approach uh but i you just kind of get sick of some of the bullshit and the greenwashing and the the advocating that happens um I think we I think if we want consumers to trust us, we need to be honest 
about the things uh, that are part of this and, and be advocates for policy change rather than just complacency and apathy. You know, most of the farm groups want no changes to the farm bill. Keep crop insurance the same. We're happy. Um, no Explain change. crop insurance to people that don't know. So crop insurance, um, I can't remember when it really accelerated. When I got, I got into farming in 2010 when there was room for me to come in. And it's ever since, I think, I think it was maybe the early, early 2000s where it really became a lucrative deal. But essentially crop insurance allows me as a farmer to, um, what they do is they look at my average yields over the last 10 years, okay? And they take an average of what my production is, and that's called your annual production history. And what you can do is, or what I can do is, I can go out and I can buy an insurance premium against the value or the, the my annual production history times the average Chicago Board of Price either in February or December of the month. Don't worry about those details so much, but you can... There's a price relative to the year that you're producing something in. And then you can buy up to, uh, you know, like like I have 85% coverage. So I can insure essentially, uh, I don't know, it's, this year it's probably somewhere around, I think it's like $1,063 an acre. So that if price goes down or my if I have a production loss, that I'm guaranteed that. So if I have a bad year, there's a floor underneath me that will kick that amount of revenue if 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 I don't produce that based off of that formula. You know, I don't think I realized it was also if just the prices didn't hold up. Oh yeah. Yeah. So right now the the corn uh so the February average was 591 uh for new crop corn and uh for the December contract was and the December contract today I think uh was trading at 519 this morning. So it's fallen uh substantially so that that's worth, you know, whatever that uh, whatever that delta difference is. Um, quite a little to have that right now, because if it's lower in the fall, it, it'll be it's whatever price is higher is what it ends up uh, getting getting based off of. And so, it's a it's a floor uh, that it takes a lot of the risk out of, out of uh, doing. A lot of people have said that. I mean, it's it's you know, farming has almost got impossible to fail at, and there's a lot of truth in it, you know, um, because of these things and what. What I'm passionate about is the taxpayer, and this this will hit all the fiscal hawks uh, right in the hot. The taxpayer subsidizes my insurance premiums to the tune of somewhere between like 62 to 65 percent. They pick up the bill for my crop insurance. I pay about 35 percent or 37 percent, whatever that is. Um, and the dig that I have is that with the things I've been talking about, the the taxpayer really doesn't get anything in return other than what gets put forward by a lot of the uh, the important people in the room is that, well, you get cheap food. Yeah, you get stable food. You yeah. get stable, cheap food. That's that's your your public investment. And uh, uh, yeah, there's some truth to that because farming is incredibly risky. I live in a, in a for people watching this getting angry at me saying this stuff, I live in a pretty uh, risk averse place. North Central Iowa is a pretty good place to go. We have deep topsoil, it rains. Um, I've had a crop insurance loss once in the last 10 years. Um, so, you know, with that said, but it's, but it, it, uh, it takes the risk out of taking chances that you wouldn't take if that thing wasn't there. And the taxpayer is subsidizing that without getting anything else in return. And so like with the farm bill coming up, like I've been, I've put some content out saying, listen, I think, uh, 
we need to start taking and we need to leverage the subsidy to get things that are in the benefit of the public interest, which uh, land is. Now, the, the government, I don't think, should own the land. Uh, you know, individuals own that land. But my view with government is like when people are not taking things that are account that have long term benefits, some, you know, that's the role, the limited role the government should have should step in and try to put policy that's intelligent to take care of those things. And so I would advocate that uh, the subsidy that we get just for without any strings attached should have strings attached so that there should be practices and would probably have to be, you know, adapted for regional differences because farming is not the same everywhere. But to take account for some of these things around soil conservation, soil health, the longevity of our food production system should be built in the policy to actually include the external costs of things like the Gulf of Mexico zone of hypoxia or just soil loss in general. And it would be an intelligent way instead of like uh, just getting rid of the subsidies because that's an argument. I don't think that would fix the issue because I think people would just keep on doing what they're used to and what the culture is and what's normal. And the same problems would just keep happening at the same, uh, same. Now there may not be people that grow corn every year in the fringe areas like uh, Northern North Dakota or, uh, or uh, you know, dry land corn in Kansas or something like that if crop insurance wasn't there, but the same problems with like in my neck of the woods, like, losing topsoil in these wind events or, or we had a four inch rain. I mean, the, my God, you should have seen the water running off the fields and the color of it and the things moving with that water because there is no break in the system naturally uh, that is substantial enough to make a, a change. And I think if the taxpayer is going to invest in the farmer, uh, that should be part of it. Um, yeah. Do you have concerns that if you, give that power of the purse through the insurance system to the government to be able to tell you how to run your farm, that you would be dominated by bureaucrats saying, we yeah. want you to do this practice. That's definitely a risk. But the thing is, is that uh, these practices are not only in the benefit for site, but it's actually in the benefit of the farmer. Like It's like I said before, you spend $25,000 an acre on ground and you farm it in a way that increases the chance of it blowing or washing away. Does that make any sense? You know, like, would you do that to your farm pickup that you wax pictures of and put put it on Twitter about how clean your shed and your shop <laughs> looks like? Yeah, that that asset value pay, pales in, in comparison to it. And so the things I'm talking about are not, it's science. Like, this is stuff you learn in Agronomy 154 at Iowa State University, soils introductory. Like, this is not, like, magic or speculation. It's real stuff, and there's real science behind this thing. And and so uh, if it's going to benefit not only, you know, the farmer, cause like, and it actually decreases these practices if they're done correctly, my chances of filing a or collecting an indemnity payment on a crop insurance claim are less because I'm utilizing practices on my farm like strip till and cover crops. Because in a dry year, when the rainfall falls on my farms, it doesn't just run off to the bottom. Uh, it actually penetrates the soil and goes into the soil. I retain and hold on to those nutrients. When right now they're talking about a flash drought developing in the corn belt over the next 10 days, I have a layer of cover and protection on top of my field that limit evapotranspiration up into the atmosphere. So I'm decreasing the, the chance of stress and risk on my farm. I'm keeping the nutrients where I want them, which is in my pocket, not running somewhere else. And, uh, um, and it's just, it's, is it easy to do? No, it takes management. It's hard. It's not perfect. There's challenges that come along with it. But I think over the long term, I think uh, putting policies in forth that foster 
this changeover in mindset mentality to long-term land management are incredibly important for the future food security of our country. But if it's good for your farm, this is already better. You're not losing, you know, valuable topsoil. Why do you, why do you need a subsidy to make it happen? It's a great question. I don't. I don't. That's what's so infuriating when I look at like, well, you need somebody to tell you to wipe your ass in the morning? <laughs> no, because running around stinking all day is no good. Like, people won't want to be around you, right? And that's the way I look. It's so, I, but, so to answer that question better than what I just said, we have a, we have a soil literacy problem in agriculture. People really don't understand soil. Farmers. And I'm, boy, I'm sure that the emails will come from that one, but it's true. Uh, because if, if you did and you actually had a, if you, if they went, if you went through a soils class at a major American university and you looked at what we actually do versus what the science says, um, we do the exact opposite of what is, uh, what is good. And we do it because it's tradition. It's what dad did. It's what grandpa did. It's what, uh, gets made to be looked sexy upon by companies like John Deere and Case and then the influencers that they support on. Like what? Like what's a practice that John Deere makes look sexy? But... Uh, so the one of the things um, that I've that has really become vogue in uh, in the Corn Belt is uh, vertical high speed tillage machines. So for those people who don't know, like usually tillage is done at like four to six miles an hour. And you would pull either like a ripper through the field that would go deep. Release Which is a big spike. That's a big down spike, the yeah. And it would pull up big boulders and like, but it sucks a lot of fuel. And when fuel prices went up, you know, it's like, man, this sucks. And you can't get as much done. And then they came out with these vertical till devices. And these things are awesome. They, they've got these discs on them and you can put a big tractor and you can pull them like 12, 14, uh, maybe, you know, 10 to 12 miles an hour, you know, twice the speed. So you can get a lot more done in a day, right? And it produces this plume of soil blowing up in the air, and it just looks badass going through a field on your on your Instagram or your YouTube channel. And but you know the reality is is that what it's doing to the soil is absolutely pulverizing any type of uh, glues, you know, biological glues from soil biology that held that together, so that when the Illinois windstorm comes, it doesn't blow, and instead that's uh, you know, and, and I'm uh, or hold you know, hold the residue in place. They're terrible for residue blowing because what it does is it, it causes the residue to detach from like the stalk or the root ball and it allows it to just blow. And like, I had this happen personally to me uh, where I had a neighbor and uh, uh, this happens all over the place. So I'm not going to pick just on them, but because of that practice, the, all the residue, which has fertilizer and carbon in it, blows off the field into the ditch. You know, and it's so then you got to go out there and burn it up and like, or, you know, just set it on fire. You know? Wait, literally? Literally. Yeah. What do you mean? Like last year I had, it took, I spent 30 hours removing corn stalks from my windbreak that blew onto my property that I had to clean up. And then I produced uh, a windrow that was 60 feet long, about this deep of nothing but corn stalks that blew off the field and uh, lit it on fire because it was, what else was I going to do, you know? And, and this, this happens all over the place. So we say that we love the land and we love car, you know, we're, we're stewards of the land and we produce where, you know, we've been capturing carbon for a long time. Well, you're not capturing carbon if your residue is blowing off the field jack wagon, like that's the carbon, 
you know, leaving. And that's the, that I, I just think there's like, if we start asking ourselves, like, what are we really doing? And, and people are like, well, those carbon stuff, it doesn't make any sense. Oh, bullshit. If you have run a combine in your life, uh, across the field and you have that fancy yield monitor that you paid big money from John Deere or case or egg leader, whatever company, where does that thing, you know, pump gas at it is in the lowest area of the fields where you have the highest amount of soil organic carbon. That's where that's the sweet spot. You have that reminder every time that you combine, you know, the hills that have been eroded and everything's washed off. They suck. You get down into the bottoms where it's washed too. Or where it, it was formed, uh, you know, geologically when the soils were formed the most, when that used to be a wetland that wasn't drained before, all the biological, you know, stuff settled there. That's where that's where you grow 300 bushel corn is in those stuff. And so, like, to me, it's so when you think of like what is based in your biscuit, it's soil carbon. And so anything that would be destructive of that is uh, antithetical to good production. And so for there's a I mean, there's definitely a small community of us uh, out there that see this stuff and it's kind of painful to to watch and frustrating. Um, But yeah, I don't I don't think I don't think people are are trying to do bad things. I want to say that because I know there's gonna be a lot of people that get angry at me for saying this stuff, but I don't think people are making a conscious decision. I just think there's a lot of people uh, that don't know better and the system the system is not set up or encouraged to know better because in doing those things, it creates demands for it creates demand for other things that the companies can sell. Oh, that's interesting. You know, I one of my favorite conspiracy theories, and like I have literally no evidence to back this up at all. But I, I had an old scientist tell me this one time. He was like, "You know who funded the original anti-GMO uh, like activists?" And I'm like, "No." He's like, "Well, who stood to lose the most?" Uh, money when all of a sudden you could go out and spray instead of doing what you did before mm-hmm. well, he's like all the tractor makers that were making giant engines to be able to drive a spike into the ground and uh, use that to rip out weeds and yeah. once you had glyphosate now all of a sudden yeah. you don't need these giant engines anymore right. and so he's basically saying all the all the tractor companies were the ones yeah. funding the original anti-gmo stuff yeah. now i don't have any i have no new any information to back that up or corroborate it in <laughs> any way but there there is truth to it because i don't know that that's an active thing but it is a result like when you do these things if you produce an environment uh you know, like right now at home, there's a lot of people, you know, replanting seed because they went out and they tilled the piss out of it. And guess what happens after you destroy the soil structure and you get a four inch rain? It packs it, it makes a crust, and then the corn can't come out of the ground. And so then now they're running back and, and, and then the cycle just re- And so you would think like next year, did, did somebody, did you make a change so that didn't happen? 95% of the time, no, it's the same. So you, we kind of, in the early part, you had mentioned how much corn goes to ethanol, particularly mm-hmm. in the state of Iowa. If ethanol were to go away in your electric car universe, what would happen to the state of, of American, you know, geography, geology? Like, what, what would happen to the face of, of... Well, there'd be a... It would be horrible for the corn belt economy, I mean, would collapse. It would get, you know, we didn't have it. I mean, I got, I got in the business in 2003 and I can't remember what year the RFS was passed. It was sometimes in 2003 and renewable fuel standard. Yeah. 
That, so that's when they're like, you have to put ethanol in here. And when I came back, like stuff was tough. Like corn was, corn was you know loan rate like a buck eighty a bushel, and there was no money. I remember when I started in retail, like we had to be careful with who we would let product go out to the door. There were some guys that they just didn't have the money, and we were carrying them. And like, it was tough tough times there were not lots of jobs in agriculture like when i came out the job market was really tough i never thought i'd end up back at home because i wanted to go work for a big company in the big city that was my my trajectory but it just wasn't there because there wasn't money you know and when the rfs happened um it changed everything no longer had to ask people questions about if they had money to cover the check people got caught up in current because you know the price of corn went from a buck 80 to three and a half, four bucks, and then five. And, you know, we had our first boom in like 10 through 13, you know, we got yeah, up to seven, 15, yeah. $7, $7 corn. And then we had a long tail and that's when the stock cropper came in because that tail had been going on for like seven or eight years. And I, and we're like, well, now we got to do something. And then COVID happened and all of the, I mean, there were between the trade war and COVID, you know, it's like over $60 billion got pumped into the egg economy to support it and <laughs> and then you put on top of that the fact that we had three years of drought in a row and like for me the last two or three years have been fantastic because if you have deep uh deep black soils you can grow some fantastic corn and we've had had great crops the last three years and record prices um i sold corn off the combine for 743 a bushel delivered to the feed mill and uh, i grossed more on one eighty acre farm last year growing corn than my dad paid for the entire farm in 1992 when he bought it. Unbelievable. But, you know, we've had production problems for the last three years, and I think we're on the it, price of corn has come down substantially. I don't, the market's, I think, flat this morning, but it's come down in the last weeks, like 60 cents on corn. And driving down to St. Louis, it looks the crop looks excellent to me. El Nino's back. I think we're going to produce... Uh, most of the country's planted. I think we're going to produce a hell of a crop, and I think we're going to be back to the economic conditions that stock cropper was created in uh, in 2020. And actually, because a lot of people have said when corn went up, like, why are you still screwing around with stock cropper? I'm like, well, because history repeats itself. We always catch up. We get it. We hit. We ring the bell, and we go back into this seven or eight year tail where things get tough. And I think we're. I think the next thing with, that's happening with the alignment with baby boomers retiring, a lot of these baby boomers have been hanging on the last two, three years. I think they were going to re- retire in 2020, a lot of them, but it's like, holy cow, now we can't, can't afford to get out because we're going to make so much money. We got everything paid for. Like, this is legacy building time. And I think now that things are going to head back to break even or less, potentially, I think we're going to see a huge exodus and there's going to be a huge transfer to the next generation. And our generation is going to have to figure out what to do with it. And, uh, but it's also time for a lot of opportunity to maybe make some changes as well. So, so you mentioned the word legacy, and you uh, you gave me permission to ask you this. But uh, can I? You you got a legacy interview for your dad. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me what made you decide to do that? Um, I don't know. I just thought it was a, a cool idea, and my dad is somebody that loves to tell stories, and uh, I I tried to. I got it to him for, uh, to him for his uh, 70th birthday, and I tried to get my siblings to come along with it, and they weren't convinced. They're like, well, who's this Vance Crow guy? And, like, like, why don't we just ask Dad questions and, like, get a you know a camcorder out or what or our phone or whatever? And, like, yeah, I, like, I want something that will last. And, like, there's so much value of history that he knows that I don't know. And, 
like to pass that stuff on. And so I, uh, I, I just, uh, I just said, you know, screw it. I'm going to do this. I had another brother that came along in on me and we gave it to him for his 70th birthday. And, uh, I told him about it and, you know, he's like a lot of people. Well, I don't think I have anything worth saying. I'm, it's embarrassing to talk about myself, you know, and he was kind of resistant to it. But then I kind of, I told him about the historical value and the stories and, I said, wouldn't you want your mom to have been able to do something like, cause she was a great storyteller. And, uh, he's like, yeah. And so he considered it and so finally went along and we got it set up and we did it last fall. And, uh, uh, so he got it back and I wanted to watch it cause you know, I'd invested, you know, in hiring you to do this. And he didn't know that if he wanted me to, you know, look at it. And, uh, so finally, two days ago, I put enough pressure, like, I don't know how many more months after you got it, I got to watch it. And it was, it was incredible. And, uh, I would, you know, the value of the stories and why your parents are the way that they are hearing that background, like not so much for me, but like, I think for future generations, like my kids to understand, you know, what has shaped me, which, you know, was my parents and like, but they, they couldn't see that they, they didn't grow up when we grew up. Right. They just see this stern, tightwad that there is their father you know but like that's because he was you know influenced by this and the the stories and the strife that people went through in the tough times of you know like farming you know in the 50s and again in the 80s and um you know the just the value of past that on like i i mean it was it was an incredibly emotional thing to watch and uh it's priceless i mean that to, to be able to capture it and do it in such a professional way and to have somebody uh, curate it with care and skill. Like my, my dad is loves to talk and he goes all over the place. And like, you just did a masterful job of like roping him in and doing things in a chronological order so that when somebody watched it, it made sense. And uh, so I know it seems like people are watching like, Oh, what, you know, Zach, what's Vance painting? He paying me nothing. I'm just, uh, I would highly, highly encourage if you think you have, a story worth telling, or even if you don't getting people in here to just let them talk and get it down. And I, I, I guarantee you will not regret uh, that decision because it, I, I am so excited for um, the future generations to be able to look back at this and use it as a, just a historical reference to the time. It's, it's, I'm very, very glad I made the decision to take the chance doing it. So. Well, I, I was honored that you did. And then, uh, afterwards, your dad uh, br- brought me out and he like had me follow him out to his uh, yeah. car and gave me a, a watermelon and it was a great experience with him. Yeah, well, you know, you've you've made it when Ray Smith gives you a watermelon. So, <laughs> <laughs> so man, I think you have probably uh, gotten some people on board with your vision of stock cropping. And uh, as we've been talking about on the podcast quite a bit, people want to join communities. They want to mm-hmm. get involved. If people wanted to just be a part of what you're doing and uh, First off, how long do they got to wait? If somebody wanted to buy a, 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 you know, one of your chicken coops, what would that, when could they get one? Yeah. So, uh, where we're at right now is we're in, uh, final prototype testing is, is my hope in the next month. And then the, the idea is our first, uh, smaller rounds of barns, the single species and the dual species. I'm hoping that we will be able to do a production run or planning, I should say of doing a production run later this fall for delivery into the spring of 2024. Subject change uh, that could happen. I thought we were going to be there last year, but it's not easy doing this stuff. And I have a lot of people that want it. Uh, we've got a waiting list. 
so I guess if you're interested, um, the easiest way is to go to my website, thestockcropper.com, and just subscribe to our mailing list. And when we get to that point, we will send out information to, to make the initial buying happen. But the goal is later this year. I mean, I watched my wife go from being like, I don't know who this farmer guy is to be. And like, I want one of those Vance. What, how long do we have to wait? Can we put one? She like went and looked up the indentures in our neighborhood last night to be like, <laughs> can we actually do this? Yeah. So like, I think you are onto something and like to be able to touch my wife's heart about this. She's not a farm girl. Mm-hmm. I think you're tapping into something really important. And uh, man, I'm so glad you made the trip down here. Uh, yeah, this is worth uh, to. This is my first podcast I've gotten to do in person and look somebody in the eye, and this, uh, this is the favorite one I've done so far. So hey, hey, thank you all for right. The opportunity. And if people wanted to find you on social media, where should they go? Uh, yeah. So the uh, what I post the most content to is uh, as far as like what I'm up to, uh, like on a weekly basis, I'll post to YouTube. So just search the stock cropper, and if you want to see a lot of the back content. Uh, the barns that we've made, kind of the path we've been on, some of the other farming practices I do, uh, that's a good place to look. Uh, on Twitter, um, I'm. it's not easy to remember because uh, it's a nickname from college, but I'm at Zebulus Prime on Twitter. Or if you search Stock Cropper. I'll put it in the show yeah, notes. Yeah, you put it in the show notes. Uh, we're on Instagram. Uh, I have a, tic- a Stock Cropper TikTok account. I haven't done a lot this year. I'm going to plan to do more on TikTok uh, and just keep pumping content out and uh, – Subscribe, follow along, and you know, hopefully, we get to the point where eventually this becomes um, something a lot more people can you know participate on. And and our the trajectory is like from you know changing agriculture with it. Like I think that was our initial idea with this system to produce like at scale. I still think this is a uh, if we could get the support mechanisms in place from funding. Uh, I think this would be a very formidable regenerative uh, ag scalable platform. It's not going to happen overnight. So I'm going to focus uh, my plans to focus the business on other these more low hanging fruits, uh, you know, for people in urban areas that still could benefit, learn more about their food, which is one of the core, you know, uh, mantras of my company, and then stair step, hopefully, you know, down the road into the thing that an idea that we think could change agriculture for the better in the future. Well, man, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, this has been awesome. Thanks for the opportunity, Vance. Appreciate it.